happens to propagate itself in our lives. And that's revealed in Galatians 5.22. The Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are the evidences of being connected as a branch to Jesus who is the vine. So that the nature of Jesus flows into us and we bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And the second component of that fruit is joy. And so when we're abiding in Jesus, the byproduct is joy. If you find yourself joyless, you may be exposing a lack of abiding in Him. A lack of trusting, of resting in Him. And then we also realize that Christian joy is related to the future. There's an ultimate joy coming that all other joys are a foretaste of. We, I've told you about the foretaste thing where I come home uh, to, to my house and Sherry's got dinner on, but it's not time to sit down and eat. And so I, I like to sneak some little sniglets out of the food. And so I, I like, uh, the, if, the, if the meat's already cut, I like to kind of get a piece of that. And Sherry has this... Um, this little style of great laying out of the food so that we're not starving to death waiting on it. She lays out a cheese tray uh, every week, and, and so this cheese tray's there, and there's some Ritz crackers, and I love little cheese and little Ritz, but what makes it even better is if you just take the cheese and the Ritz, and then you take a little slice of roast beef. Just kind of lay that right on top, or, or a piece of turkey or ham. You know what I'm talking about? And you just pop, and you just, and that's like a foretaste of glory divine. What's happening there is, I'm getting a hint of what's to come. That's not the full meal, but I'm getting a hint of it. All of the joys of this earth are hints of an ultimate joy. The joy we will know when we sit down. Listen, when we sit down at whose table? The king's table. We're going to sit down at the king's table, and we're going to have what's called the Feast of the Lamb. I don't know what's going to go on on that, but i got a feeling that all of the little joyful tastes we've ever had of any joy in this life are going to only have been cheese and crackers. And all of a sudden, it's going to be, it's going to be, what's the emerald? Bam! It's going to be really good. Okay, so it's, it's future. So here we go, into today's message, having that background. Single-mindedness is very important. In in the Bible, when you talk about double-mindedness, you get James chapter 1. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. You get Jesus in Matthew when he lays out in 624. No one can serve two masters, for he'll either love one and hate the other, or he'll cling to one and despise the other, that There is a thing called single-mindedness where you have this one capital, principal, chief love and all other loves and all other passions and all other desires are subject to that love. And that's why we're called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And the way we love Him is through Jesus. So this is a single-mindedness. I'm going to get ahead of myself here because I'm going to give you a hint about a word to come. And I need to give you an introduction to that and why this message is built around this theme and why these verses tie together. The word that I want to hone in on for just a second is in the beginning of verse 6. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll turn there, Philippians 4, 6, it starts off and it says, Be anxious for nothing. 
Be anxious for nothing. The word anxious here is a very important core to understanding the rest of this text and why verse 4 and verse 8 are actually a part of this one thought that the Apostle Paul is expressing. The word anxious is a word that means to break your mind in parts. When somebody says, man, I just feel like I'm falling apart, that they're, they're t- talking about that. It means that the mind is double-minded. The mind is broken into parts. It's a reference to an unhealthy kind of ADD where we have the lack of attention to the things that deserve the attention and we're parting out our attention to things that don't deserve the level of attention we're giving them. You say, Art, can you kind of clarify that? Okay, I can. Do you all remember the Mary Martha story? Raise your hand if you remember the Mary Martha story. Okay, there's this moment... Jesus is being ministered to by two sisters. One of the sisters, when Jesus gets to the house, she sits down at his feet. And she parks herself there for the whole visit. The other sister is trying to do the whole hospitality thing. So she is in the kitchen and she is cooking. And she's in the living room and she's cleaning. She's probably touched up the bathroom for his visit. The whole thing where all over the place she is trying somehow to impress, somehow to prepare. And what's happened is is her mind is not on the guest. It's on everything. It's on anything but the guest. And so, Mary's parked at the feet of Jesus, Martha's running around, and she gets mad at Jesus. Because Jesus is a friend of their family. And she gets mad and she says, hey Jesus, aren't you going to get on to my sister? Because I'm having to do all this prep work for your visit, and she is just parked there at your feet. And here's what Jesus says, Martha, Martha. You are anxious about many things. The word anxious used here is the same word used in Philippians 4, 6. And it means to have your mind on too many things that don't deserve the level of attention that you're giving them. That's what anxiety is. It's when we displace our focus of loving and trusting Jesus with a thousand other things. And it is spiritual A-D-D. And what happens is, is it wrecks our peace. You see, Jesus turned and said to Martha after that, Martha, really, only a couple of things are necessary. In fact, only one. And Mary has chosen the greater thing. What was that? It was Jesus. And so, when we come into this study and we talk about single-mindedness, we need to understand that Jesus is coming to the earth and the call to rejoice in Him is to get our focus on Him in such a way that He begins to bring the rejoicing, peaceful effect on a group of people who know and love and serve Him so that we're different from the world. 
So, in single-mindedness, we have to understand that there's a battle for joy. There's a, there's a really strong battle for joy. There's a battle for worship. Because worship brings joy. Joy in something brings worship. It's sort of a cyclical relationship. What I rejoice in, I worship. What I worship, I rejoice in if it's delivering. If it's giving, if it's gaining to me that which I in my heart desire. And so worship grows joy, joy grows worship. Listen, it's why it's a battle when you come to church. It's a battle when you come to church because there is a war for your joy going on. And that's why you can come, look look around, this many people came today to worship God. That ought to delight us. But somebody in here has probably made you mad along the way. So when you got in here, rather than seeing that all these people gathered to worship God, you saw that one person, they stole your joy, and now you're double-minded here in worship because you can't focus on God because you're upset with somebody else. And so you're double-minded today and a little anxious. Or... This is kind of like when you go to the grocery store and you get to the grocery store and that one item you came for, they don't have the exact item. And you just really flame out. Has that ever happened to you? You just flame out. You just, I mean, you are all just... And then you don't realize that in Venezuela they don't have anything in their grocery stores. And you have to understand, why aren't you rejoicing that your grocery store is full of so many things already? It's absolutely stopped. You pretty much get whatever you want, except that one item. And the worst thing's going to happen, you're going to have to just drive another mile or two to get it. But you're flaming out and missing the fact that God has made access to food. You didn't farm it this morning. You didn't milk the cow. You didn't harvest the crop. You just got in your car and went and got whatever you wanted. That's great! There ought to be some joy to that. But that's not how we function. We get double-minded because the things that want to steal our joy are constantly assaulting us. People that disappoint us, situations that frustrate us, they're constantly assaulting. Because here's the deal. Satan knows this. He knows that you will not glorify God when you're anxious. He knows you will not glorify God when you're frustrated. He knows you will not glorify God when you're double-minded. So Satan wars in worship and he wars in joy because he does not want you to bear the fruit of the Spirit so that people would know that Jesus really is worth serving. That's what's happening. And that's why the flesh is so easily frustrated. People so easily disappoint us. Because we're missing. Do you know? The, the, here, here, here it is. Let me just go on into it. Number one. Rejoicing in the Lord always. This is how single-mindedness is fostered. Rejoicing in the Lord always. I have come to see and really believe that part of the reason we're not enjoying worship is because we've forgotten that we deserve to go to hell. Somehow, we didn't get that this morning on the way up here. We've completely forgotten that if God gave us this morning what we deserved, 
we would be dispatched swiftly into a lake of fire irrevocably. And if we can't get a hold of that, we'll get upset about a lot of stuff that's trivial. Our greatest, sweetest, grandest joy ought to be that Jesus Christ on the cross bore our punishment that we deserve. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus wasn't talking through Paul to us about physical death. He was talking about eternal condemnation. And the great joy that the church ought to be rejoicing in this morning is that because of Jesus, our path to hell has been blocked by the cross. We're forgiven. We're His children. We should be rejoicing. There should be some deep joy just in that. And we have forgotten. Failed to see what He's really rescued us from when He came. We failed to see the glory of O Holy Night. The stars are brightly shining. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. And then you have the glorious appearance of Jesus to deliver us from our sin and error. And so, single-mindedness is fostered by constant rejoicing in the Lord. And the chief rejoicing is our salvation. The goodness of God poured out into the womb of Mary, a human being that is God in the flesh, who was willing to come looking for you. He did. In love. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to be a ransom for the captive. He came to be a shepherd for the lost sheep. He came to be water for the thirsty and bread for the hungry. He came to be light for those in the darkness and resurrection for the dead. This is our God. Seeking us. Loving us. Not giving up. And so, rejoicing in the Lord... That's why Paul heads it up here. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. How frequently? Always. Always. This is very important. This is a part of what Christmas helps us with, is rejoicing in the Lord. Jesus in teaching His disciples in Matthew 5, said, Blessed are you when men persecute you, and cast insults at you, and do all kinds of evil against you in My name. Blessed are you. Rejoice. For so they treated the prophets who were before you. That means that we're even to rejoice in suffering. Or even to rejoice in hardship. What marks Christians from unchristians is the capacity to have an abiding joy in any situation that we're in. No matter how severe. No matter how painful. This is a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we move on. How does Paul say to, to, to foster the single-mindedness? Well, first, rejoicing in the Lord always. That is the first and foremost component of this. Second, number two, is releasing demand of one's own privileges. 
This is a touchy one, and and I, I really hope it provokes us today. It's provoked me in preparing. Look in verse 5. Now, I'm going to read to you from the 1977 edition of the uh, New American Standard, which is the Bible I preach from. It's been changed a little bit in the updated edition. And you'll notice that when, when Andrew was reading, and maybe in what you have, but there's a reason that this word was used here. Look in verse 5. It says, let your, and in New American Standard 77, it says, let your forbearance or your forbearing spirit be made known to how many people? All. Okay. Well, there was a reason that the New American Standard chose forbearance rather than gentleness, which is in a lot of, um, a lot of translations, or meekness, or giving. There's several different translations out there. There's a reason, but Greek has a word for gentleness. It has a word for meekness. It has a word for giving. It has a word for those. This is not that word. This word is very important, and it's hard to translate because we don't use a lot of words that are like this word, except the word forbearance. And we don't use... How many of y'all use forbearance in a sentence this week? Anybody? Yeah, that's what I thought. It's, it's not a word we use a lot. First off, it has to do with our culture, and second, it has to do with just uh, kind of how we typically use uh, several words sometimes to give an idea rather than one. Forbearing is very important. In the day that this was written... It had to do with rights of citizenship, culture, and law. It had to do with rights of citizenship, culture, and law. And the word means that you forego or release a right granted to you by citizenship, culture, or law in order to do good to another person. So that means you have a privilege that you possess. It's yours. It's granted to you by culture, by norms, by law, by citizenship. You possess it. But in order to help another person, you forego that right. You lay that right aside. This is described in talking about Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Excuse me, chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, I urge you, brothers, by the meekness and forbearance of Jesus. See, Jesus had some privileges. He had some rights. Did you know that? When he was in heaven, he had the right to be worshipped by all. To be adored. To be obeyed. He had all that. It was his privilege by being the second person of the Trinity, Godhead, deity. But the Bible says in Philippians 2 that he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But he emptied himself. What does that mean? He laid aside his privilege for what? For you. If Jesus had clung to his rights and privileges, you would go to hell swiftly. 
in order to save you from your doom, He laid aside His glory. He laid aside His rights. He laid aside His privileges. He emptied Himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found as an appearance of a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to death, even death. On a cross. You say, now, Pastor, how do you know that Jesus gave up any privilege in this thing? Jesus is having a discussion in Matthew 26 with the Pharisees. And they're telling how they have all this power and all this authority. And Jesus says, let me clarify something to y'all. Do you not know that if I asked the Father right now, He would dispatch legions of angels to my aid? So when Jesus was standing on the earth, He could have said, Hey, Dad, I'm done with this. Send the reinforcements and finish this thing off. That's what Jesus said. Now, Jesus' privileges had to collide with need. Where did they collide? In the Garden of Gethsemane. When all of a sudden, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And He began, in the strain of bearing your sin, He began to sweat drops of blood from the intensity of the load of your sin that He was bearing. And He began to say, Oh, Father, if there is any other way, Let this cup pass from me. You see, it was in that moment that the collision of your sin and Jesus' rights and privileges came to bear. And He relinquished His rights and His privileges to purchase your soul. And so when it says, let your forbearing spirit be made known to all men, it means that somewhere in your journey, your rights and privileges are going to collide with gospel need. He's going to call you to missions. He's going to call you to a ministry. He's going to call you to some misery. And when He does... You must let your forbearing spirit be made known. Not to some men. Not to men you like. Not to people that you approve. But to how many? To all. It might be your torturer. Your imprisoner. You say, oh, Pastor Bart, you're, you're talking about unreal things. If you follow me on Twitter, you saw that I posted this week an article about Dr. Helen Rosevere, a famous English missionary to the Congo. She had just passed away at the age of 91. I want to give you a little insight into her life and then bring you to a closing place here with what Paul says is the next thing to do. When Helen Rosevere came to know the Lord, a, a minister who spoke on the night that she came to the Lord, wrote something in her Bible that turned out to be greatly prophetic. Here's what was written in Helen Rosevere's Bible. Tonight you've entered the first part of the verse. This was Philippians 3.10. That I may know Him 
and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to the image of His death. That's the verse that He wrote. And here's what He says. Tonight you've entered the first part of the verse that I may know Him. This is only the beginning. And there's a long journey ahead. My prayer for you is that you will go on through the verse to know the power of His resurrection. And also, God willing, one day perhaps, the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. As she felt the missionary call increasing in her, she finally came to this breaking moment that she went off into the mountains and listened to what she recorded about that day. Afterwards, I went up into the mountains and I had it out with God. Okay, God, today I mean it. Go ahead. Make me more like Jesus, whatever the cost. But please, knowing myself fairly well, when I can't stand anymore and I cry out, Stop! Will you ignore my stop and remember that today I said, Go ahead. It didn't stop there. There was a war. In the Congo. She was seized in the war. Here's her recollection. They found me, dragged me to my feet, struck me over my head and shoulders, flung me on the ground, kicked me, dragged me to my feet, only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, a mouth full of sticky blood, my glasses gone, beyond sense, numb with horror, an unknown fear, driven, dragged, pushed back into my own house, yelled at, insulted, cursed. They were brutal and drunken. They cursed and swore. They struck and kicked. They used the butt end of rifles and rubber truncheons. We were roughly taken, thrown into prisons, humiliated, threatened. And then she was assaulted in the way that I believe all husbands fear for their wives and parents fear for their children. You know what I'm talking about? I don't want to get too detailed. And after that happened, she said, On that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, unutterably alone, I had felt at last God had failed me. Surely He could have stepped in earlier. Surely things need not have gone that far. I had reached what seemed to me the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. But in the darkness, however, the Lord spoke to me. You asked me, He said, when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary, this is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. This is the forbearance of Jesus fruited out in the life of a follower. What did she say? I then received an overwhelming sense of privilege that Almighty God would stoop to ask of me a mere nobody in a forest clearing in the jungles of Africa something He needed from me. Through the brutal, heartbreaking experience of this assault, God met with me with outstretched arms of love. It was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete. And suddenly I knew, I really knew that His love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand. 
God understood not only my desperate misery, but also my awakened desires and mixed up horror of emotional trauma. I knew that Philippians 4, 19, my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of glory in Christ Jesus, was true on all levels. It was not just a hyper-spiritual shelf where I tried to relegate it. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way in the fellowship of His sufferings. This, this, is, this is it. It is when we finally get to that place where we say, I lay aside whatever rights and privilege would hinder another person from receiving the gospel of the King. And we run off to the mountains like Helen and we say, whatever it takes to make me like Jesus, do it. But when you do it, would you remind me that I said this? Because I might forget. She continued in ministry far, far beyond this. An incredible woman of God pouring her life out for the salvation and well-being of the souls there in Africa in the darkest Reaches, she released her rights and privileges into the hands of Jesus, just as Jesus released it into the hands of his Father. Number three, realizing the present help of Jesus. This is what Helen was describing that there is a nearness that comes. Hebrews chapter 2 tells about Jesus taking on flesh and blood and through death, destroying Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And then it talks about this allowed Him to bring aid, to render aid to His children. Listen, the more suffering you are, the more opportunity to know how near Jesus really is. Suffering strips us of all of the ignorances of how sufficient Jesus really is. He, what does it say in Philippians? Read it. Let your forbearing spirit be made known to all men and knowing that that would be hard, he says, the Lord is near. He, it, it literally reads, the Lord is at hand. That means he's this close right here. I love when my wife is this close and I can touch her. In the middle of the night when I'm anxious, there are nights I just reach over and just do one thing. I just reach over and I just, I just lay my hand on her and I know she's there. Jesus is even closer. The Bible says there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. That's Jesus. He is there. What Helen found out in the midst of finally being able to let her forbearing spirit and her rejoicing in the Lord be known to all men, she was savagely abused. And Jesus came nearer and nearer and nearer in her experience than she would have ever known any other way. 
And then the fourth part. Here we go. Let's move on through this. The fourth part. What does he say here? I've titled it, Resting in Prayer with Thanksgiving. Resting with prayer, in prayer with thanksgiving. How am I going to carry all this out? When it gets so hard, what do I do? Well, you pray. You pray. Here's what he says. Be anxious for nothing, but in what? What's the next word? Everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And here's that promise. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension. Listen, it surpasses my comprehension that a woman who had been treated like Helen Roosevelt was treated could have had such a sweet experience. That's beyond my comprehension. That's the kind of peace that you can't buy. You can't sell. You can't give. It is the peace of Jesus Himself being with us and letting us rest in prayer. How? With thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. Oh, Jesus, thank You that You've forgiven me. Thank You that You've saved me. Thank You that You've delivered me. Thank You that You love me. Thank You that You would never leave or forsake me. Thank You. Thank You. Thank You for the church family You've given us that loves You. Thank You for the ministries You've allowed us to be a part of. Thank You for my wife and my daughters and my friends. Oh, Jesus, thank You. Bathe up your prayers in thanksgiving. It'll send peace all over your heart. Finally, Wendy covered this very well. Number five, reflecting only on what is beneficial. Our minds are terrible places. I don't know if your mind is like my mind, but I'm telling you, I'm glad you can't read my mind. It's a, I've described it as like a sack of cats. It's just not good. And I am so thankful that by the power of the Holy Spirit, God helps me continually direct my mind to these eight things. Let's look at them real quick. First, whatever is true. That means to remember that Satan is the father of lies and he's always going to be lying. Your flesh is always going to be lying. The world is always going to be lying. And with all those lies coming at you all the time from your own self, from the devil, from the world, you've got to battle it with truth. So whatever is true. Second, whatever is honorable. Honorable means if we published it tomorrow on the internet, you wouldn't be embarrassed by it. So don't think on things that are embarrassing morally. Right. The word really is just or righteous. It means that which is by nature good. Pure. That means things that are not defiled. Lovely. That means the beauty of God in things, in nature, in creation, in wonderful relationships. Of good reputation. That means Things that have a reputation for goodness. This is where we really battle. We're in the line at the store and we look over in the magazine rack and we see that this two-headed space alien clone of Elvis is going to marry some rock star next week and we're going, how do you know about that? That sounds so interesting. And we start reading further because our mind is drawn to these things that are not of good reputation because of the fallenness of our flesh. Next, excellence. Our mind needs to be on things of excellence. Those are the things of God that are of His nature and the glorious revelation of what He's like and then worthy of praise. Things that make our hearts lift up in praise to God. These are all ways of battle. These are all ways of 
These are all ways of victory. How could we close this? I want to give some closing thoughts from Helen Roosevelt. When she was in the middle of her missionary work, she began struggling with a little bit of pride. The enemy began working into her sufferings some pride for having suffered. Some pride for having endured. Some pride for having stayed the course. And it started to build up in her and it started to get on God's radar. And so the Lord called it out and this is what she came to as she conversed with herself after prayer, and she believed that this conversation was the Lord revealing this to her. Listen to it. You no longer want Jesus only, but Jesus plus. Steve, it makes me think of the t-shirt. Plus respect, plus popularity, plus public opinion, plus success, plus pride. You wanted to go out with all the trumpets blaring from a farewell do that you organized for yourself with photographs and tape recordings to show and play at home just to reveal what you had achieved. You wanted to feel needed and respected. You wanted the other missionaries to be worried about how they'll ever carry on after you've gone. You'd like letters when you go home to tell how much they realize they owe you, how much they miss you. All this and more, Jesus plus. Listen to her closing lines. No, you can't have it. Either it must be Jesus only, or you'll find that you have no Jesus. You'll substitute Helen Roosevelt for Jesus. One of the great challenges that you and I will walk out of here today with is the extinguishing of a pride that would like to boast in ourselves for how we've suffered or been hurt for the cause of Jesus. And how that somehow elevates us among those who wouldn't. How we've been scorned or ridiculed or attacked. And doesn't that just make us something? One of the great challenges of Paul's teaching of joy in Philippians is that if that joy ever turns to be rooted in ourselves, it is guaranteed to evaporate. We must fight every inclination in our hearts to elevate ourselves for any suffering long-suffering, durability, or anything that we have ever accomplished in the name of Christ. Because to exalt ourselves is to belittle the only one who deserves credit. We must leave here today and get our minds on a single focus. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, would you bow with me? Some of you are here today and you need Jesus. You need the very thing that Helen experienced 
early in her life, that I experienced early in my life, that others have experienced both early and late and middle in their lives. You need Jesus. Somehow, maybe I've failed to warn you properly of what is to come without Jesus. One day, some folks came to Jesus after a tragic event where a tower had fallen on a big group of people. And all the people were standing around discussing how those people must have just been bad people have something like that happen. Jesus turned to them and He said, let me, let me tell you all something. Do you think those people were any worse sinners than everybody else here in this city? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Jesus was making sure that we could not walk away from Him thinking that He is optional. We are doomed without Him. And we will enter an eternity separated from Him in a very hellish hell. And it is inescapable. And Christ alone can save you from that, can, can deliver you, can forgive you. And He did so by His perfect life and by His death in your place. And if you would trust that God raised Him from the dead after that wonderful life and sacrificial death, that the Bible says He would forgive you and give you eternal life. And you need that today. You may have been in church a long time and still need it, or it could be your first day and you need it. But I want, I want you to come to Jesus. I desire, I hope. So I'm going ask you to pray with me and call on Him and ask Him to save you. Would you pray? Father, You are God. And I have offended You by sinning against You. I believe that my sin deserves the punishment of hell. Yet I believe that Jesus did what was necessary through His life being perfect through His death, being a substitute for me. Through His resurrection, coming back from the dead. I believe. I trust. Because I trust You, would You forgive me? Would You take me as Your child? Would You save me and keep me? Oh, if You just prayed that and from the sincerity of your heart, desire to follow Jesus. The Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Others of you, you're believers, but you're here today, and anxiety has you so double-minded that you're living a Martha life. And God's calling you to be a Mary. And come and sit at the feet of Jesus and settle down. And quit being so troubled. And at those feet of that divine Savior who loves you, that you would be anxious for nothing but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that you just let Him know all your requests. And that you would trust that the peace of God flowing through Jesus come right on to you and set you free. Would you do that, believer? Quit being anxious. Quit. Stop. Trust. 
My hope is you'll be like Helen. Whatever you're going through, you would see it as the fellowship of his sufferings. And you would count it a privilege not to hold on to your rights, but to relinquish them for the cause of the gospel. God may be calling some of you to ministry, some of you to a ministry, some of you to missions. Would you do that? Would you quit fighting it? And today say, yes, make me like Jesus. Would you stand as God works in your heart? Would you come?